Hello and welcome to the Unheard podcast with me, Aisha Hazarika. This is the podcast where we have two fantastic guests and they pick out stories for you which they think are important but somewhat underreported in these very busy and Brexit-obsessed news cycles. I'm delighted to have Matt Ford, who is a very good friend of mine, former Labour staffer and is now a comedian extraordinaire. It's funny, Matt and I were joking actually saying that since we left politics and became stand-up comedians, we're just now taken far more seriously. Oh yes, yeah, I'm taken far more seriously now. <laughs> and uh, we have Gavin Haynes, who is a writer for Vice and a contributor to Unheard as well and has made um, some really excellent documentaries. Gavin, welcome. Hi. Nice to see you. Right, Gavin, we're going to crack on with you. What is your underreported story? Well, in any other news week, it would be an overreported story, which is uh, the ongoing disintegration of UKIP. Ah. Uh, Nigel Farage left the party just yesterday, and uh, it, it seems like uh, Suzanne Evans left too. There is a whole story here with people just um, abandoning it because of the populist agenda of Gerard Batten, who has a very sort of um, is in tune with our times, but perhaps not in tune with the the old school of UKIP. Well, it does seem extraordinary that Nigel Farage seems to have exited UKIP quicker than we've exited the European <laughs> Union. I mean, this is a man who very much, you know, UKIP was sort of his finest project. And he, whether you love or hate Nigel Farage, you can argue he's been one of our most successful politicians, you know, in terms of having a mission and then getting it sorted. I mean, I find it quite interesting because I think Farage was actually responsible for introducing quite a nasty strain of debate into our politics. Very, very harsh anti-immigrant rhetoric, um, the famous breaking point posters. But Gavin, do you sort of, do you think it's crocodile tears that suddenly, you know, they've all had a sort of conversion to sort of good values and snowflake liberal kind of attitudes? Well, it's funny because people do seem to habitually fall out with Farage. Uh, he has many enemies within the party. He seems to have best friends for sort of three or six months who are then sort of brought up through the ranks and then they fall out with him. You know, he's a very tempestuous lover in that sense. <laughs> oh, don't, I don't um, want to think about that. <laughs> um, please. Yeah. But uh, at the same time, like there is a sense that... Um, Farage has um, always tried to maintain a kind of a cordon sanitaire. Uh, he was very big at sort of kicking out those extreme elements uh, of which Tommy Robinson, which is where this whole thing kind of starts, um, would be one of them because Tommy Robinson um, might have cleaned up his act in various ways, but he was once a member of the BNP and that is verboten in UKIP land uh, for obvious reasons. Uh, and as, as Batten points to, uh, UKIP is the only party that has that kind of uh, cordon sanitaire. There are various ex-BNP councillors who now work for Labour and the Tories in local government. Well, what's interesting is that it does seem that, um, you know, Farage in some ways, well, not in some ways, in, in a very clear way, made UKIP quite, you know, or even though UKIP hasn't ever managed to elect anybody into parliament, it's certainly been a huge political force. Yet it seems like he's sort of created a Frankenstein's monster because of some of the people that are now coming in to UKIP. So tell us a little bit, you've done quite a lot of work in terms of you've been to UKIP conference recently for documentaries. Tell us a little bit about what you found in terms of who are the new UKIP supporters. Do they care less about leaving the EU and do they care more about immigration, culture, you know, anti-Islam? We know, is that more their agenda now? 
they care about both. If you go to conference, you are kind of going to get uh, the Blue Rinse Brigade. Uh, I think the, the average age of UKIP member, uh, according to Neil Hamilton, was, was 72 until quite recently. Um, but Batten in particular is driving a new agenda and um, he has courted, uh, the, I guess, the new stars of the online right, uh, who I've made a documentary about, uh, people like Sargon of Akkad, uh, Paul Joseph Watson and Count Dankula, who are now uh, within this movement. And they are... Um it shows you how mad our politics is. I mean, we were, Matt and I was like, lovely. When, when, when you say Count Dacula in, like, in very sage terms, like really heavy skiers, Count Dacula, he's now involved, yes, very serious. Yeah, well, I mean, but they, they all come from uh, YouTube and, and the, the vernacular there is very different. And Batten, whether consciously or unconsciously, has, has learnt to speak in that vernacular and he's pushing this sort of anti-Islam agenda, um, this idea that uh, this is an ideology that needs to be fought. Um, that and you know when he goes on Newsnight, he speaks one way to, in the sort of conventions of politics. But I've seen him at rallies where uh, he, you know, called the prophet a paedophile, uh, which might be factually accurate. But there's clearly sort of a, a, a tone thing going on there that uh, he is he is courting those people. Matt, what do you make of all of this? I think it's fascinating. I mean, obviously, post-referendum, UKIP have really struggled for a purpose and their collapse was really due to their success that they'd achieved their one objective, which, as you say about Farage, you know, is highly rare in politics and that makes him very successful. It's interesting to see them not try and own the hard Brexit. I think they sort of rightly perceive that that is owned by the Tory Brexiteers rather than UKIP. And now they've gone on. And I think you're right as well, Aisha. Th these things were already sort of brewing under Farage and they've been actively encouraged. But to see them hold hands with these sort of quite bizarre it's not even about how right wing they are, it's more about the culture and the, as you say the tone of them, you're dealing with quite and I don't want to be rude about some of these people but you're dealing with um, a, a new form of eccentrism that, that you know there was, there was kind of, there was the retired colonels in the shires eccentrism that, that, that UKIP was sort of mastered and now you're dealing with this sort of online uh, very aggressive but it certainly attempts to be humorous which is very different to what you could have done before. Absolutely, yes. It's it's, it's a different kind of uh, fruitcake altogether. Um, <laughs> but you know, but these people have have numbers, and that's what Batten yeah. needs. Um, and apparently, GDPR has been quite influential in in this whole story because obviously that has not allowed them to uh, take up a, a lot of supporters who they had on mailing lists. And now You're talking they're about looking the, for the, 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 the data protection thing yeah. that doesn't allow you to sort of email out to people. Um, but Tommy Robinson has a million Facebook. Facebook followers. Sargon of Akkad has 860,000 YouTube followers. Uh, Paul Joseph Watson has 1.4 million at last count. So wow. that's where, you know, Batten has been instrumental in, I guess, saving the party, sort of rescued it financially by sort of pulling out donations and, and others. And where there's an interesting parallel, if you look at what's happened to the Labour Party in the last couple of years, the Labour Party has very much kind of joined forces with young social media activists. One of the great success stories of the Labour Party is the fact that they have completely, they've managed to sort of merge a political strategy with an effective social media strategy. And that's never really been done before. When when Matt and I were working in politics, we thought it was quite an, you know, I remember setting up Ed Miliband's 
Twitter account <laughs> and then somebody famously tweeting about blackbusters oh, by mistake no. when Bob Holness died. I mean, that is, how, that is the level of sophistication. Now, you know, it's a completely different thing. So I think in a way what all um, insurgent political parties are, if they're smart, they're thinking like the way, if you know, if we can't get on through the sort of traditional structures of politics that, you know, the, the much maligned mainstream media, will we create our own networks and use them to often devastating effect. I suppose the interesting thing will be though, what do you think the mission is? What what do you think the political strategy is for um Baton now and and UKIP? Um, you know, it's it's very good or interesting to have these younger, these YouTube stars on, but where do you think it goes? Like do you think they'll ever be able to convert the messages of these largely men from broadcasting from their basements? Do you think they'll be able to convert that into anything with the electorate, at the ballot box, in terms of candidates? I mean, historically, they have been shut out by uh, the system we have in this country. And, and they they were polling at 25% in 2015. And that's, people forget wow. that's why we had this referendum in the first place, is because Cameron needed to shut the door on them. Um, but since 2017 and, and the general election, they've been consistently polling at 6%. And the needle hasn't really flickered uh, with, with the new agenda. Um, but obviously Batten senses a, a wave and he came up with an interim manifesto at the party conference in, in September. And what, what were his some of his sort of key sort of policies um, or themes? Muslim-only jails, I think, was oh. one of them. Uh, Gosh, I'm actually recording something in a jail later today, so that's going to be quite good for me. Well, there you go. Not sort of a compulsory Muslim jail, but... Um, Give it time. Yeah, well... Um, but, I mean, I can't remember any particular policy, but the, but they had uh, a quite a clear clarion ring of that um, movement that is sweeping across Europe. Um, and... That's kind of where he sees the party. He, he looks to the success of, of Salvini or maybe Kurtz in Austria um, and the AFD and he sees an agenda there which works. And it seems that this rather quiet man of politics, doesn't have a lot of charisma, has understood the game in a way that a lot of his predecessors didn't. Now, Matt, we're smirking and, and some of it is funny but that actually it's, it's, there's, a, there's a deadly serious sort of message under, under all of this you know oh, yeah. some of these views which are being um, pushed um, they're deeply they're deeply worrying but he would argue that that's how a lot of people feel nobody speaks up for them how do you think uh, the media and I suppose mainstream politics grapples with this you know this rise of very, very anti-immigrant populist, you know, sentiment. Do you think, for example, he should be on things like Newsnight? Newsnight got actually got into quite a lot of controversy. They did a big piece on Tommy Robinson. How do we take this sort of tiger by the tail? I think it's difficult. I mean, I, I was never sympathetic to the view when UKIP were doing well that, you know, you'd see people on social media saying, why are you booking UKIP? They've only got one MP. But they'd they'd got something like four million votes in a general election in 2015. They'd done really well. They they were democratically endorsed by a huge amount of people, and and actually that did justify their place ahead of the Greens and ahead of Plyde and ahead of other people. I thought um, you have to, I think, have debates out in the open in order to defeat these ideas, particularly in a time when social media is given a platform to these people. On top of that, I remember working for the party in Stoke where we had. Nine BNP councillors, they held 15% of the council yeah, and therefore were entitled to democratic support. And that was a huge challenge for some of the people who worked there, less of a challenge for others, I'm uh, sad to say. Um, 
The only way to defeat the BNP in that area was to absolutely take them on and share platforms with them and expose them, not just for being racist, but frankly for being thick and useless in every other regard. They were awful local councillors and we'd no platform them and it hadn't worked. So I think sometimes, obviously the temptation is to say shut them out, but because of social media, you can't shut them out now. Mm. You, these things have to be challenged and they have to be challenged factually and they ha have to be challenged with passion. And I just think there is always a conundrum because by sharing... I, Equally, I really don't think that by doing a piece on Tommy Robinson on Newsnight, you're going to really attract people to Robinson's cause. Certainly you're going to highlight his profile, but you also have to shine a light on, on very dark elements. And really, in a way, I, I think that is the only way to defeat them. Well, I mean, the, there's always that sort of famed example of actually the thing that really did the BNP in was Nick Griffin yes. going on Question Time, where I think actually Bonnie Greer really took him apart, as yeah. did everybody else. Although, you know what I really remember about that? Him, her mocking him for getting a 2-2. Two -two. Oh, I thought that was really bad. Well, as someone who's very proud of my Desmond um, yeah, and who's just had a lecture really... theatre named after, so I think you can do very well with the with the with the two two actually. No, I thought it was really. But... I just thought, you know what, the way some people challenge them, and I've just called them thick because the ones that I was dealing with were. But I think you have to debate these people in the right way. And, See, and take I, them on. I think that's a really important point. I think one of the reasons why this whole argument is spinning out of control is. There is a bit of calling everybody thick and yeah. there is a bit of sneeriness and snootiness from, from one side. And I think what's interesting about Steve Bannon, who is very much the kind of global poster boy for yeah. this, and it's interesting that he wants to come and spend more time in Europe to mobilise these sort of populist um, far-right parties. He's smart. You know, yeah. he, he's been given platforms recently and I'm afraid your argument about give people a platform and they'll they'll end up disgracing themselves... That hasn't happened. The opposite mm. has happened. He did an event with The Economist, and I'm afraid he ran rings around the editor of The Economist, and he got every single message that he wanted out. He yeah. just kept, he allowed him to keep saying, you're the party of Davos. Um, I mean, Gavin, what are your thoughts on, on this, just finally, in terms of how do you think we defeat these ideas, or, or do we? Do, you, do we just have to let a thousand flowers bloom in a in a in a functional democracy what what's your sort Great of take Prague on spring it? of ukip um <laughs> yeah i i mean i have never really understood the idea of no platforming uh or anything around that it seems to me quite obvious that we live in a democracy and and people should have their position to speak and it should be commensurate with the support that they have and when you went and met some of these youtube stars what uh, did you like them or did they say some things that troubled you? Did you think they were a bit weird Did you, or did you think they, these guys were the messiah and sort of, you know, had this great vision for the future? Uh, they're not the messiahs. They are very naughty boys. <laughs> uh, but um, I, I mean, I guess they are interesting because they, they are rank outsiders. They're not really plugged into uh, the, the Westminster agenda. They're not in, a, in that kind of, you know, they never aspired to become journalists um, and they don't really understand politics as a game of who's in and who's out. Um, Sargon in particular is quite interesting because he is one of those sort of, sort of autodidact uh and and that sort of lends a particular flavour to his commentary, and he's a, he's a big into sort of military history and, and the like ancient the Greeks and things like that. And there, there is a sense of like he, he's considering this as a sort of forty thousand foot power game thing, and sort of the the deep quite, idea of the demos. But, but quite a few of them have a background in gaming, which is quite interesting, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, I mean that's a whole sub story. How this movement came out of 
an event in 2012, which is far too complex to go into now, called uh, Gamergate. And you know, prior to that, there was the the skeptic movement, which they came out of the atheist community, effectively yeah. on YouTube. And then that sort of forded into the um, social justice atheists, and then the sort of skeptic atheists, if you will, who who took a sort of uh, an equality of opportunity um, means on this. And yeah, that's it's a very long story in that sense. <laughs> Fascinating. And now they're possibly shaping our politics. It's, we live in extraordinary times. Thank you for that, Gavin. It's a really, really um, interesting discussion. Now, Matt, over to you for your underreported story, also very important. So this uh, this uh, story just broke in the last um, couple of hours, but uh, there's been an online gambling voluntary ban from uh, the, what the what are called the Remote Gambling Association, which includes Bet365, Ladbrokes and Paddy Power. And they've struck a deal to stop adverts during live sports broadcasts. So it's called what's called whistle-to-whistle advertising. Oh. So from the start of the game to the end of the game. And what you'll notice if you watch sports regularly, and I do, is during the ad breaks, you'll have Ray Winston come up and go, get your mobiles and laptops out. And then they will give you on the screen odds for the game that is actually happening. So it'd be like Kane to score next 6-1 to one, or Liverpool to win 2-1. Uh, you know. So you can sort of really get involved in real time. and Real um, time. So they, I mean, firstly, I mean, in, a, in a, a total side point, the technology to be able to do that to an advert, I always found quite impressive. That you can change an advert while it's being broadcast. Um, but obviously what it's led to is not only you've got two things going on. One is a huge rise in gambling advertising of sport and not just the coverage of it, but shirt sponsorship of, of teams and competitions uh, and, and other sporting events, and as well as this, this TV advertising. Uh, and obviously there's been a huge focus on fixed odds betting terminals, the so-called crack cocaine yeah. of, of gambling. And we've had actually Matt Zarb cousin on a few times to, to talk about yeah, that. Yeah, he's brilliant yeah. on that. Um, which sounded like a caveat. It's brilliant on other things as well. <laughs> um, but, uh, yeah, this is really interesting because gambling is such a big part of sport now. And it, I always think with these things, we had alcohol and tobacco advertising, we banned those out, so then gambling replaced it. We'll probably end up banning that, and then it'll probably be chocolate, and then we'll end up banning that, and then it'll be butter, and then we'll end up banning... You know, what, we will end up in this cycle of... I am not regular... going to stand for anyone banning butter. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. No, that, that, is, will, that will get me on the streets. <laughs> that will get me marching. But it will always be replaced by a vice. Yeah. Uh, it strikes me anyway. I don't think I can't imagine carrots sponsoring the Premier League or, or something like that. It will always end up being something like this. But also, just from a personal point of view, gambling is such a big part of sport. And yet, despite the slew of advertising, the relentless on-pitch advertising, on-shirt, on-screen, I never gamble. And it doesn't... I've not seen a single advert that has ever made me want to... Do it. I've seen car... I don't... I'm not into cars at all. I've seen the occasional car advert. I've gone, oh, that's like a nice car. It's never stirred me. And I just... It, it, what I find so fascinating about advertising is, for some people, it is profound. Mm. And it will really awaken something in them. And then in other people, there's literally nothing they can ever say or do that will make me want to do it. So do you think that we're being a bit too nanny steep with cracking down on this gambling... I think you've got to be careful. I mean, I've got a lot of mates who bet and nearly all of them use apps now. Very few of them will walk into a bookies and place a bet so they can just do it with ease. I've got one friend in particular who gambles a lot. Yes, and of course, whenever you talk to gamblers, they always tell you how much they've won. They never tell you how much they've lost. So they say, oh, 500 quid last week. This is amazing. I need to talk, and even that doesn't make sense. It's like the Labour Party. <laughs> exactly, yeah, yeah. So it's always only talking about successes. But what he can do is you can do this freeze out thing where you can in one app you basically say i want to have a cooling off period and then you can't use any gambling apps so there are ways in which the industry already allows 
gamblers or users, whatever you want to call them, to, to regulate their own behaviour. But I suppose, as you say, so much of it comes down to your character and whether you have a personality yeah. where you can restrain yourself, whether it's alcohol, whether it's sugar, yeah. whether it's eating, whether it's shopping, whether it's gambling. Um, and I suppose, I suppose, where the public policy challenges, do you cater, do you always have to cater for the lowest common denominator mm-hmm. of person who just doesn't have that self um, restraint? Gavin, what do, have, you, have you have you ever gambled? Are you a gambler? <laughs> yeah, uh, yes, I have, and I found the best cure for gambling addiction is losing a lot of money because uh, <laughs> it's, it's all very well on the ups, isn't it? But uh, yeah, I think I lost actually sort of such a nerd that I gamble on political things, and I think I lost two hundred and fifty quid on the <sighs> the UKIP Stoke on Trent uh, by election. Um, oh, that's when um, what Paul Nuttall was defeated by Gareth Snell. Yes, yes. And you see, so I went up there to cover it, and I thought I had a bit of inside info. It seemed like it was all Ooh. going very, very UKIPy, oh. and that's that's when you should gamble, isn't it? When you feel no, that you can. No, that's you, you, you doing insider the... trading. You shouldn't no. have gambled, actually, Gavin. That was my last bet. Was when Gordon Brown was going to call an early election. Oh. And I was working for the party at the time and I'd been called into a meeting where we were basically told it was on. I was like, it was at the Bournemouth conference, I remember. Yes, I remember. I just started working as well for the party at that point. And we're going on the Ladbrokes website thinking, I've basically got insider knowledge. (laughs) You think you can't? I put money on. And I remember driving all the way back to Nottingham thinking, I'm going to get done for insider trading. You have to be really careful about that stuff. And then when it didn't get called, I was just livid. I was like, I've already spent that 400 quid. (laughs) 400 quid. But, I mean, Gavin, do do you think, I mean, there's, I think all parties, and interesting, the, the gambling has really risen up the political agenda. We saw Tracy Crouch resign yes. quite recently over the, the government's sort of delay on the FOB T stuff. The Labour Party is very strong on this. We mentioned Matt's our cousin Tom Watson is, is very much in favour of cracking down on this, as is Jonathan Ashworth, who's the Shadow Health Secretary. Do you think that this is an area where, the, where there should be some big state intervention? Because gambling is a blight on a lot of people's lives. It is very vexed in that regard, isn't it? It sort of challenges all of your ideas of, of personal liberty and the freedom of the individual because, you know, 96% of people can get along just fine and have a bet and put it down. But there is that sort of problem segment and should they be saved from themselves? And I think one thing that I guess Tracy Crouch resigned over was the fixed odds betting terminals and that idea of the, the crack cocaine of gambling, this sense that you can go in there and happily blow through um, you know a thousand pounds in the course of an hour um and and what do you do then you know we all have our moments of madness and we all have our i guess dopamine hits that we need to get through the day and for some for some people this is that as as bad as alcohol um for some people it's social media isn't it in terms yes. of that <laughs> <laughs> but uh, what you do about it, um, it seems that we have recognised that there is some kind of a, an issue here, a net beneath which we should not allow people to fall. And like like the freeze-out thing, there is a lot of uh, legislation around this already and the industry is, is quite decent at monitoring itself. Although there are many that argue that actually the the industry, yes, it's it's doing some stuff, it, it makes great profits, it's, it's putting some into education, but it's also a very powerful lobby. Um, You know, it does. Again, there was another controversy about ministers, the hospitality of going to the races, and all of that. So much money, (laughs) and they own. So this is the thing: is that people love sport, and if you can get ministers to a cup final or to a game of their choice or to the Cheltenham Gold Cup or whatever it is. And for for listeners, I mean, I mean, Matt and I obviously have worked in politics. I would say of all the 
um, treats that MPs and politicians get offered, sports events oh, are the most popular. They absolutely. are the ones that they will always want to go to. Yeah, definitely. Particularly in Labour circles, I think. It was always football matches. So... Matt, where do you think you know public policy goes on this? Do you think you know? Would you be supportive of like more of the Tom Watson line of how to deal with this, which is much more intervention? I think you just have to do more for the people that are effectively victims of it, and and indeed victims of themselves as well. Because I would never want to stop people betting or being able to have a flutter, and it would be against, I suppose, my ideological position of of, of individual freedom. Um, but there is no doubt it causes so many severe problems for people. When you meet people who've lost everything on it, it can't be right to allow that continue to continue. So this voluntary code actually is a really good start, but actually it's far more fundamental. There are people who just sit in bookies all day long. Mm. Now, what, how is that different to sitting in a pub all day long? It's social. Uh, people get a free cup of tea and a can of Coke or whatever. You know, they are they're community hubs in a strange way. Yep. And so many local pubs have gone. And actually, some bookies at the last outpost. That doesn't mean that they should um, be retained, of course, if they're a, if they're a blight on people's lives. So I, I, I suppose in a way I feel morally confused about it, where um, my belief in liberty... And yet, the belief to protect the individual—I suppose this is the same as any. Yeah, it's the same. I mean, what, what's interesting about this is it looks like the, the the gambling industry have brought come forward themselves with this. So maybe this is the sort of—I suppose it's the third way of of doing it with the 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 the, the, the sort of damasies kind of sword of legislation hangs over them so they think right okay we'll we'll actually try something ourselves we recognize yeah. that there's a problem but look, thank you for raising that matt it's a, it's a story which we often um come back to because as you say it really does capture that difficulty of how much libertarianism you're mm. happy to take and how much of the big old nanny state you want to get involved with right we're now moving on to my favorite section of the show which is heroes and villains now we are going to start um with uh, our heroes, uh, and I'm afraid we are going to mention the B word because it has just been such a huge week. Um, Matt, your hero of the week. My hero of the week is Yvette Cooper, and I would make her my hero of the year. Well, okay, well, Southgate would be my hero of the year, but political hero of the year would be Yvette Cooper. And it's partly because, firstly, she, I think she'd been the most effective voice against Brexit. I think she's been the most effective voice holding the government to account, not just in her interventions this week on the floor of the House, but as chair of the Select Committee, she's been absolutely phenomenal. And her demolition of Caroline Noakes a few weeks ago was an expert... Um, it, it, it was a great demonstration of how Parliament can hold people to account outside of Prime Minister's questions and outside of uh, parliamentary debate. And her... I feel so strongly about Yvette Cooper now, and I think it's partly because there was a period of time where I think, and I think a lot of people felt like this, where that sort of second generation of New Labour, of Ed Balls, Yvette Cooper, Andy Burnham, felt like a bit of a problem for the party. And I, just, I always felt that there was a sort of professionalism around the way yeah, that Sadly, people they spoke. were running to be leader at that point. They were running to be leader at that point. And it just felt like... Labour was slightly losing touch with what politics was for me and, and the tone in which people spoke. And th I think this era has just been such a catalyst for the improvement uh, of Chuck Ramuna and of, and of Yvette Cooper. I just think Yvette Cooper has risen, and she always had the natural ability, of course. I think this has been really the making of her. It's interesting you say that because I, I would agree with that. I think there was that generation, let's be honest, they were the generation that kind of had politics handed them to them on a plate. They had been special advisors. Yeah. They got parachuted into safe seats. They were in the kind of, kind of cabinet, you know, really, really quickly. 
And it was almost like their sort of political daddies had fixed it for them all. And suddenly Absolutely. they had to go and fight at big school by themselves yeah. and, and, and they, they couldn't they couldn't do it. Corbyn comes along and wipes the floor with, with yeah. all of them. And I would agree, I think, Yvette Cooper and actually Andy Burnham. I think Andy Burnham has yes. really come into his own as well. I think Yvette has proved herself to be a really um, impressive, for, impressive sort of forensic inquisitor yes. um, on the Home Affairs Select Committee. And also I think it's shown you that where a lot of the action is happening in politics is not with the leadership of parties, it's with very good backbenchers. My other hero of the week would be Dominic Grieve, oh, yeah. who I think has been an exceptional backbencher and has shown that actually there is a lot of control you can exert in Parliament, over Parliament, if you do the the, the hard work um, on things. Gavin, what, what are your thoughts on all of this? I mean, obviously we don't want to have a huge Brexit <laughs> I mean, discussion, but <laughs> any heroes or villains around Brexit that stand out to you for you? Um, I mean, I've always thought uh, Yvette Cooper struck me as one of those politicians who wants to be the deputy head prefect of life. You know, there's there's a there's a real sense of the schoolgirl to her. Um, and yes, I mean that that generation. Would you, you know, say when that you think about, about a man, Gavin? I would say that about Andy Burnham, perhaps. <laughs> Michael, Michael Gove, definitely. <laughs> Um, no, I think Gove is a sort of a, a strange weirdo in his own right. He's oh, a, he's a, a different... Um, yeah, I mean, who's a Tory one? Um, Amber Rudd, I guess, has a bit of that too. Yeah, again, that's sort of like handed to her on a plate kind of thing. Um, and I've never really paid Yvette Cooper uh, much heed since that uh, fateful uh, leadership election where you know, I just tuned out of all of this. Why did Corbyn win? Because all those three lost. Um uh, Dominic Grieve, yes, has um, put in quite a, quite a. Um, I think what's interesting about him, he's sort of been the the kind of slightly I hate to say the quiet man of politics. It makes it sound like Ian Duncan Smith, <laughs> but what, what's, man of what's, politics, so. what's interesting again the slightly underreported element. So everyone this week has been very fixated on the government losing that vote on contempt and having to publish this legal mm. um, guidance, which is, um, you know. Interesting to a point, but it confirms what we already knew, which was we're going to be in a backstop forever. But the 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 amendment that Dominic Grieve put down is arguably much more influential because if um, and possibly when this vote is lost, this big meaningful vote, it means that Parliament will have much more of a say. And nobody even saw that no. coming. The whips didn't see it coming. Political commentators didn't see it coming. You think that is quite impressive. And it really underlines your point about the talent on the backbenchers because it does feel like... In both of the major parties, at front bench level, there is a real lack of rigour and a real lack of... When you think of some of the things that from... So Dominic Raab discovering that Britain was an island. <laughs> Dominic Raab discovering that Dover and Calais was <laughs> economically Dominic significant. Raab, just... Dominic Raab in general. Karen Bradley's ignorance on the politics of Northern Ireland is one of the most shocking admissions I think in modern British politics that she didn't understand until becoming Secretary of State that nationalists vote for nationalists and unionists vote for you. <laughs> part, I mean, it was mind-blowingly um, ignorant. And it does, you know, David Davis taken as a whole, uh, some of the stuff that Corbyn and Barry Gardner come out with, let alone Diane Abbott. And you just think all the all the most limited people on the front bench and all the talent that's on the back. Now, that's not true because there are hugely talented people like Amber Rudd, like Keir Starmer, that, that, that are on the front bench of those parties. But Dominic Grieve is a particularly intellectual individual who's totally understood process and totally appended them with it. And it's been... A, I, I love the drama of the fact that the cleverest people are basically sat at, at the, the back, back of the class. Now, speaking of which, what did you make of um, Corbyn's uh, latest outing at Prime Minister's Questions where he did go on an important topic, austerity, but didn't mention... Um, uh, the huge defeats in Parliament, an, an open goal, people would have said. The thing is, you get so used to him 
being useless at PMQs and so used to him not going on what he should be going on. He's almost deliberately, I think he's deliberately, he's a contrarian by nature, I think. Therefore, he likes to not do what he should be doing. Um, but I interviewed Emily Thornbury last week. And she made quite a startling admission, I thought, and this was in front of an audience of people. So Jeremy's not bothered about Europe. It's just not his thing. Mm. Now, that's when it's honest. The, uh, it's honest, but when it's the single biggest, I, I, I take that point historically, but now it should be everyone's biggest thing because it's the single biggest thing facing the country. That's a, I mean, it's a really interesting comment, quite an underreported comment, given yes. that it was a, a big thing. I mean, Gavin, do you think it? Do you think it matters that Corbyn is sort of stepping back a bit from Brexit, just leaving it to the Conservatives? Do you think that's actually, in a way, honourable because everybody knows that he's an archer, a sceptic, so maybe he's just been authentic? Well, I think it's a positive strategy on the part of the Labour Party right now. Like, they just want the Tories to stuff it up on their own terms. Uh, they don't really have to do anything. Their plan, uh, as such, is essentially May's plan. They want to be within the customs union and um, have a very close but not integral relationship with the um, single market. And, and that's what this plan uh, provides. Um, and they are just, um, you know, banging the drum for a general election in their own quiet way. But... Uh, as I say, they don't really have to do much. The yeah, Tories are doing it all for that them. That is true. They're kind of, they just have to sit back and, and drink it in and, and, and just see what happens. Right, uh, villain of the the week, Matt, you had a, a good set of villains for the yeah, week. Yeah, so it's a group of them. It's the people who um, chased Owen Jones down the street and abused him. Um, do you want to just explain for our listeners what happened? So uh, down on College Green at the moment, which is that little bit of grass that they report from outside Parliament on the news, there's a Sky and the BBC have erected these mobile studios and there's a whole load of people down there. There's a stop Brexit guy. There's the leave means leave people. There's just a constant background noise. And a lot of it is great, funny British eccentricity. And I was down there that day in a, in a tent doing a radio interview. And I could hear this noise in the background and just thought it was the stop Brexit people. Uh, and then it was only when I got home I realised that these, and I think they were English nationalists, had chased Owen Jones, calling him, I think, homophobic names and, and calling him a wanker and, and chasing after him. And just to see someone pursued down... And I really wish I'd seen what was happening because I'd have gone over and intervened. What really annoyed me was these people have chased him a bit... You know what? Heckle people a little bit. I can, you can sort of take that, even though I don't think even that's OK. Pursuing people down the street is really scary and it nasty. Was, it was pretty threatening, wasn't horrible. it? They're getting right in his face. They're being homophobic. And what really disappointed me about it, and these things happen so quickly that how could people... But I just wish someone else would have intervened and tried to stop them. And I just think what really compounded it for me was them watching people on Twitter who should know better kind of enjoy it. No, I know. I, it it was... really made me sad. I just thought, whatever you... And Owen Jones, actually, when you meet, he's a lovely bloke. Um, I disagree with the way that he behaves online sometimes, but it doesn't justify this behaviour. And I don't think we should have a relish watching people being bullied. Well, it, it it sort of feeds into this... I mean, actually, there's there's suggestions that they were kind of Trump supporters, Toby Robinson, I think they were definitely of the, the right, it seemed. Yes. Um, but it, it does get into a big, a wider discussion about just that coarsening of um, our political discourse. Look, on the one hand, you can argue that politics has never felt more alive. You know, whether mm. you love or hate Brexit, people are engaged in politics. OK, a lot of people are fed up about Brexit, <laughs> but a lot of people are also kind of engaged in politics in a way. This is the, the dark side of it. 
possibly kind of catalyzed by lots of stuff on online, Gavin. What do you think? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, Owen Jones is one of those figures who the right love to hate, um, and that's mainly because he's he's a quite a powerful voice, particularly with the youth and um, um, articulating a lot of these things. Um, very powerful on social media as well. Yes, he has a I mean this presence. is this is it, and and I think that's where the blurring comes in because social media's are parasocial in some ways they are intimate mediums and it seems like these people are your friends or, or your enemies uh, and people get very confused by that and do you think then so when people are engaging on social media and it's not really real then when they do come across either their heroes or their villains in real life do you think they just don't know how to to handle it? Do you think there's going to be the consequence of possibly more of this threatening behaviour? We, we, we know the Joe Cox story very, very tragically. But do you think the kind of just mania on social media is going to cross over to this much more kind of violent form of, of sort of physical interaction on politics with people? I mean, you're very much supposed to know where the line is. Uh, and I think, you know, most people would just have their photo taken and leave or whatever. But um, it does seem that there is a small, uh, persistent minority who, who think this is this is the great game now. You know, it's it's people who view politics as about personalities rather than opinions anyway. And, and they have been given sort of leverage by the, the, the timbre of things these days. Now, speaking of a very different um, era of politics and political conduct... Um, your villain sorry Gavin your hero of the week hero villain is uh, actually hero villain because to some people he's a bit of a villain actually well, well, this is it. Um, George Bush Senior, uh, a man whose obituary I wrote uh, five years ago, oh, and uh, wow. he's finally uh, died. So I got the, the final uh, peg of my check, um, and so I just wanted to talk about him on that score because I, I spent a long time uh, dredging the internet to find unusual facts about him and sort of turf up a slightly different profile. Um, what was the and, most unusual fact you found? Um, I can't remember. I, I mean, he had a, a child who died of leukaemia, which I think is is underreported. Um, he was a cheerleader at Yale. Oh. Uh, and in fact, his <laughs> granddad, Prescott Bush, um, invented the Yale Glee Club. And his, and George Bush Jr. was also a cheerleader at Yale. Wow. So there's this sort of strange jazz hands tendency within the Bushes. This I can most... kind of see George Bush Jr. doing a bit of jazz hands. Mm. I can sort of see that, actually. Yeah, yeah. And what's your overall um, kind of assessment of his legacy? Well, I mean, it, it's strange because, um, as I say, I, I couldn't really pin anything on him. You're sort of trying to write a balanced piece and, and find uh, the darkness within George Bush Sr. I mean, I guess he was sort of tainted by Iran-Contra and things like that. But overall, on the, on the sort of biggest calls, he seemed to get them pretty much right. I think... A lot of his calls were calls of omission rather than commission. Apart from his famous read my lips. Well, <laughs> this is it. I mean, he was a terrible politician. Uh, he was a sort of terrible is... domestic politician. He was a very good sort of international statesman, wasn't he? He wasn't terrible domestic politician, but he didn't seem to fare as well domestically he, he never... as he did internationally. Well, I, I think they're, they're both aligned because he never understood that politics is a game and you have to sort of play to the, the, the gallery at the back. Um, he just ploughed on in this quite boring way and, and refused at the time that the, the, the Soviet Union was collapsing to be triumphalist about that. Um, it's, and, yeah. it's, it's interesting because he's definitely from a, a time where, um, you know, political conduct was very different, although there are, there are echoes to what's going on now because he very much predicted and witnessed the beginning 
of the the the, the right of the Republican Party, the, the beginnings of the Tea Party and where we are now. And he was actually very aware of the fact that he was not seen as a Republican leader that a lot of his base would be happy with. You know, he often made quite dismissive comments. He made comments about the religious right of his party being kind of, you know, spooky and crazy and that they were going to, you know, drag the party down with their kind of crazy ideology. So in some ways, you know, there's there's echoes of what's happening now. Matt, what's your assessment of, of the man? I always remember, or I don't remember it from the time, it's one of those clips that I would often show people on YouTube of the debate between him and Bill Clinton. And it's more to do with how good Clinton was. And it's during one of the presidential de- debates and a, a black lady in the audience asks George Bush Sr. how the recession has personally affected him. And he says, I don't understand what you mean. <laughs> she repeats the question. He just kind of says, well, I'm the president, you know. And Clinton <laughs> says, gets up and asks her how it's affected her. Oh, yes. And yes, it's a yes. brilliant bit of like, oh, that's what you should have done. That's what you should have done. And then Clinton goes, uh, it's an amazing to, moment. Of, he really oh, emotes, doesn't he? He oh, really so emotes. Good. It's a really big moment. And he says, I'm a governor of a small state. If businesses go under, I know who they are. People lose their jobs. The chances I went to school with them. It's so good. And he lets her say basically how the economy's gone to crap. And, you know, the words come out of her mouth and not one of the candidates. So I always remember that about George Bush. About him being slightly flat-footed. But I think with all these people, and particularly with George W. Bush, it's always good to engage with them and, and, and read about. I, I remember reading Bush's... Junior's autobiography, Decision Points. It's one of the best books I've ever read. And people always think I'm joking. Partly because I love autobiographies and he does his in a different way. He takes seven decisions he took in his life and explains why he took them. So you don't have that chronological autobiography um, structure that most follow. And within each chapter, there are stories of stories of adolescence. He talked very openly about his drinking. So the first uh, chapter is about... George W. Bush's struggle with alcohol, which obviously you get the best of both worlds. You get this emotional insight into his own personal suffering. You also get some really funny drinking stories. <laughs> so it's this great... I, I've always been slightly, despite their politics, enamoured by the Bushes in a, in a strange way. I hate dynasties. I hate nepotism. I would never count myself as a Tory, let alone a Republican. Oh, come on, you're a bit of a Tory. We, we, we get... Do you think? <laughs> uh, but I I'm get only, called a Tory exactly, all the time. I'm only joking. like the <laughs> red say. Tory, red <laughs> Tory scum. That's normally what, what we get called. But I mean, what, what I thought was interesting about his his passing it's actually reminded me of when John McCain who also recently oh, passed man. there's this great almost cross party um outpouring of affection for him and it just does i suppose remind you of a time when politics was a bit more consensual than it is now well the idea of a rockefeller republican has gone in the dustbin of history long ago you know that sort of the east coast thing is is is, is way down yeah and i i guess it's it's also it doesn't seem to have been um Quite so much mourning. I remember the funerals of, of Ford and Reagan um, a while back, uh, well, like 12 years ago now, um, and, and they were really big events. I guess the news cycle was just slower then. There's just too much going on. Yeah, um, although I suppose the one thing, just to put a tiny bit of grit in the oyster, you know, he was very much for, you know, he had a bit like McCain, you know, had this incredible backstory and had held all these positions, as you say, heralded in sort of dynastic politics. I mean, I think people like him who are, you know, arguably very good, you know, important statesmen, but they're very, they're part of the club and they're part of the establishment. Yes. And I think what we are seeing now in this country, in Europe, obviously in America, is people pushing back against that, you know, you're born into this sort of political aristocracy, you have this gilded ascent through public life, and, mm. and a lot of people are actually saying, you know, we want something 
different. We do want people who are outsiders and who haven't been part of this kind of golden circle. Oddly, I think in this country, the right have been better at guarding against that than the left, or more to the point, specifically, the Tories have been better at it than the, than the Labour Party. When you think of the Labour Party uh, with the Kinnocks, with the Bens, uh, and they're all very talented people. Yep, yep, and yep. Hillary Benton. The Millibands. The Millibands. And you just think, well, why is the left so... I mean, even Corbyn's son runs McDonald's office yeah. or, or works yeah. in it. There's Kate Ossimore... Her mum's in the House of Lords. Her son got, you know, basically two Labour candidates were deselected yeah. so that Ishmael Osamor could get in. There's I mean, lots just, of married couples, Ed Balls. I think yeah. it's really bad. It, you know, absolutely. Even Harriet, Harriet Harman, husband, but anyway. The left is so bad at guarding against nepotism yeah. and, 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 as you say, dynastic politics. I just think it's uh, really, the left should be... It goes more against the board. The, the values. No, well, I mean, that's a, that's a very good point on which to end. Well, look, thank you so much um, to my guests, Gavin and Matt. Matt, you are on tour. Do you want to plug your dates? Oh, yes, lovely. So I'm on tour across the country from February and I'm doing two specials at the Leicester Square Theatre of my political party podcast, which you can also listen to if that's all right. Um, uh, on the 19th and 20th of December, on the 19th, I have Jess Phillips and Sarah Wollaston. And on the 20th, Alistair Campbell and Nick Bowles. Fantastic. Thank you so much for um, joining me and thank you for listening to the Unheard podcast. I'm Aisha Hazarika.